In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Amen. Please sit. Today is one of those Sundays in the life of a clergy person where you wish you could preach three different sermons because all the texts are sort of fascinating and full of incredible things. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But I was tempted. <laughs> Especially after Caroline read the story about Paul's conversion so well, which I'm really not going to touch. But if you haven't, if you're not familiar with that story, go back and read that story because Saul converting into the Apostle Paul, who we know and love and sometimes have a difficult relationship with, is really a fascinating, fascinating story. But instead, we're going to look primarily at the gospel today. And I want to begin by asking you if you have ever had to do that sort of touchy-feely icebreaker, which I feel like I have to do with clergy all the time, about who you would have dinner with if you could have dinner with anyone, including people who have already died. Has anyone ever had to do that particular kind of torture? I see a couple of hands. Okay, great. So some of you maybe are in touchy-feely circles like mine. How would you answer that question? If you could have dinner with anyone, including the people who have died, anyone in all time, who would you pick? Just one person. I have had lots of answers to that question throughout my life. I think probably most often it's been Edith Piaf. After that, it was probably Joan of Arc. There are certain seasons and moments in my life when I would probably pick my father. But ironically, it never really occurs to me to pick Jesus, which as a priest probably sounds a little funny. But I feel like I have a pretty present relationship with Jesus. We talk every day. I feel like I know him. I feel like he's a part of my life. So I don't need to have dinner with him necessarily. Although that sounds nice. I certainly don't want him to feel I'm snubbing him in some way. I'd be very happy to sit down and have dinner. But the difference is for the disciples, that's sort of the moment that we find them in this morning. And the difference is for them, they have seen him die. They've lost him, and now he's found again. They saw him go, but he's been returned to them. And he's appeared just a couple of times now since the crucifixion. And I think in order to understand this story, we have to really try to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit and understand how unnerving and how strange, and certainly how gifted and how hopeful, but also how very weird this time would have been for them. Not only did they see him die and now have seen him several times since the resurrection, they sort of have no idea what's going on. What God is doing is beyond their comprehension and ours in many ways. And so it's sort of a weird time frame for them. We know how the story will end, and so it's easy for us to just sort of move ahead and Think about what the disciples, now apostles, are going to do, and they're going to go build the church, and Peter and Paul are going to make all of these decisions that are going to determine the future. But they don't know that yet, right? Paul is still not yet converted in the weird timeline of church right now. And Peter is still in this weird twilight zone, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And the disciples have no idea what this means for their day-to-day -day life. They don't know if Jesus is staying. 
They don't know if he's leaving. They don't know when they'll see him again. They're sort of in this weird holding pattern with the person that they love most in the world who keeps appearing and then disappearing. And so it's in that context that a group of them go fishing. And they fish all night long, and they catch nothing. And keep in mind that some of them are professional fishermen. This is what they do. This is how they make a living. Probably most of them, actually. So it's a little embarrassing that they go out all night and catch nothing. And then some guy yells at them from the beach and tells them to put their net on the other side of the boat. Now, clearly, if you look at what I'm wearing, I am not a fisherman, right? This is not my trade. But I have done my fair share of sitting on the beach and holding the rod and waiting. And so I have some sense, and perhaps you do too, that there are different places and different times when the fish appear, right? That's true. But nothing so simple as, okay, the net was over here on this side of the boat, we're going to drop it over here, and now there's a ton of fish. That doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. And so one of the things that's fascinating about this text to me is that the disciples just do it. They don't roll their eyes. They don't get sarcastic. They don't grumble. They don't wonder. They don't say, who's that guy on the shore who thinks he knows better than we do? They just do it. They literally just sort of pick the net up, pull it in, and drop it on the other side. They give it a shot. And I think that speaks to a couple of things. It speaks to their context, surely, because they've seen stranger things than this, right? And maybe now, instead of critics, they've become believers. They've started to believe that things can work out, that things can be different, that they don't necessarily know the answer to everything, and maybe there are other people who know more about certain things than they do. I think it speaks to their overall sort of place in life at this point. But it also speaks to the fact that there is a profound humility in that moment. In any moment, when anyone comes and tells us what to do, right? We have a whole host of choices. And in this case, for the disciples, I think there's a profound humility that is both palpable and powerful about this moment. Because they, they are willing to be guided by someone that they can't clearly see, and they're not entirely sure they know. There's a humility in that when we are all willing to be guided, to be taught, to imagine that perhaps even though we think we know everything about a particular thing, maybe there's someone else who knows a little bit more, has a different understanding, a different perspective. Perhaps there have been moments in your life when you have experienced that humility. Maybe it was a, a teacher or a coach. Maybe it was one of your children who taught you something. But we all have those moments, I think, when that humility becomes a part of our being. And I think one of the things this text does is encourage us to try to hold on to that all the time, to live in a place of curiosity and willingness to try rather than a place of skepticism and defensiveness. Because the disciples just kind of haul the net in and throw it back out on the other side. And all of a sudden, there's a ton of fish. 
And of course, that triggers a, a flurry of action at this point, right? Peter realizes that it's Jesus who's yelled from the shore. He makes himself presentable. He jumps into the sea, races off to see Jesus, who already has a charcoal fire burning on the beach. He's already made them breakfast. The rest of the disciples follow in the boat. In this moment, I like to imagine two particular things. One, the excitement of the disciples as their boat is moving toward Jesus, and also probably their huge eye roll at Peter because he thinks he's so special. He gets to jump into the water and go ahead of them. No, no, Peter, we're fine. We don't need your help. It's, it's fine. Go ahead. But when they get there, they all share a simple, beautiful meal. Probably they were starving. They'd been working all night, so... Not only are they happy to see Jesus, they're happy to share a meal together with the person that they love most in the world, even though he's died. And there are a couple of important pieces to notice about this meal. Jesus is absolutely making a point about their work, a pretty blunt one that we've sort of started to hedge toward. The blunt point, I think, is that they can do more with him than without him. It's kind of a hard lesson to teach them by making them fish all night and not catch anything. But the point is that there is always hope. That even though to this point their efforts did not lead them to success, if they are willing to be guided, if they're willing to follow their faith, if they're willing to listen to Jesus and follow him, then amazing things can happen. And so too, the message is for us. If we are willing to live like discerning people who listen to Jesus' voice, who are willing to give up some of our control to admit that we don't know everything and we don't control the universe, which I know is a surprise, but is true, and things go better when we name it. Then for us as individuals and as a community, Jesus can do remarkable things and make a way out of no way, and he does. One of the other things that's important to notice about this meal is that in the ancient world, they were pretty convinced that ghosts were a real thing, that spirits could show up. But what they couldn't do was eat. So it's a big deal that Jesus is eating with them. That's one of the ways we know he has a corporeal body. The text is real clear that they share breakfast together. That means he's eating. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's flesh and blood. Different, but real. And then there's this great exchange between Peter and Jesus. And this probably is my favorite part of the text for a whole host of reasons. And there's a really nerdy priestly reason for some of that that I'm not going to get into. But this exchange is so gracious. Jesus singles him out, which maybe doesn't seem super gracious. But what he's doing is giving him this fantastic gift. So let's rewind to Holy Week. Right, when Jesus is arrested on Monday Thursday, and he's taken to the temple, and Peter follows, and he's in the garden. And three times people ask Peter, you're one of his disciples, right? And three times he says, no, I don't know the man. No, you must be mistaken, I don't know the man. Three times. So today, in the gospel, Jesus gives him this gift in exchange. Three times he asks, do you love me? And three times Peter assures him that he does. And what they're doing is undoing, counteracting the three times that Peter denied him before the crucifixion. 
I think we have to imagine that during that night, particularly after the night when he denies Jesus, Peter must have carried with him some incredible shame. He had just said to Jesus, literally not 24 hours before, that he loved Jesus so much he would follow him to his death, to Peter's own death. He's just made this deep vow of love and promise to Jesus. And then the first time he experiences any kind of resistance, any kind of danger, anything that might put him at risk, three times he denies the person he loves most because he's afraid. Now, we know that there's a tremendous amount of fear involved in something like that. But often there's also a tremendous amount of shame sadness, regret. All of us have things that we would take back in our lives, things for which we are sorry, things that we have made mistakes doing. All of us carry some of those wounds. And you may not use the word shame, perhaps some of you will, but in some ways, I think we all carry the, the deep sadness of having wounded other people. And so what Jesus is doing here is giving Peter and us a remarkable Easter moment. Jesus isn't just forgiving Peter for his denial, which would be amazing in itself. Just to say, Peter, it's, it's fine. I forgive you and I love you would be enough. But it's not for Jesus. Jesus has to go to the extreme. So instead of just forgiving it, Jesus finds a way to undo it, to literally cover the shame over with love. To make it new. In this Easter season, as Christians, we are called to joy. That's the whole point of this Easter season. And Easter is longer than Lent because God is good and wants us to dwell in that joy longer than we hung out in the serious, somber, penitential nature of Lent. Yes, we should do that work, but then God is always sure that there's more abundance and more joy that comes after the hard work. But I think often we struggle with what it means to really take that joy in and to really let it change us. And some of that is because our life doesn't keep with the liturgical calendar, right? We still have our own pains and our own tragedies and our own struggles and the things that happen in our day-to-day -day life. And some of it, I think, for some of us, it is also about the things that we carry, that we hope we've been forgiven for, that we think maybe we've been forgiven for, but we haven't completely let go of or forgiven ourselves for. In almost a decade of doing this work, I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with someone who didn't think they deserved God's forgiveness or God's love, not in like a martyry kind of way, but in a profound, I'm just not sure it's mine, I'm not sure God gave it to me kind of way. And so this morning, to you and to everyone, God says, let down your net on the other side. And be prepared, if you're willing to be guided, for it to be filled with joy. If there is something preventing you from joy, something you carry, maybe some things, 
a reason why you don't think you deserve it or can't access it, then to you I say Jesus is on the beach. If you have done what you needed to do to seek reconciliation, to make things better, then you have to forgive yourself the way that God has forgiven you. And for you this morning, Jesus is standing on the beach and waiting, wanting to show you where to cast your net to pull in not just a little bit of joy, but an abundance of joy. Now, one of the things the text is real clear about is that we have to do the work still. We have to do the work. Jesus does not go out to the boat. He does not cast the net. He does not pull the net in. You still have to do the work. You still have to be willing to be guided. You still have to be in the moment. You can have companions in that work for sure, and that's one thing that church is really good at. But you still have to do the work. But if you're willing to do that, he will show you the way. And at the same time, prepare a meal for you and invite you to come and sit. He is waiting to show you that there is Easter joy for you if you love him, if you can find it in him, and if you are willing to be guided by him. Maybe you've been working on something for a time, for a season. Maybe there's a piece of your life journey that doesn't feel complete yet. Maybe there's something that nags at you that's been frustrating, something you've been trying to do for quite a while, but you can't seem to achieve it. Sometimes we have to turn those things over too. Give over our control. Humbly, willingly admit that we need help or that somebody else might be able to send us in the right direction and often that someone is God. In this Easter season, Jesus is waiting for you longing to appear to you, to help you find your joy, to let you undo the wounds and undo the pain and undo the shame that you carry, to cover all of it over in love. Look for him in the distance. Listen for his voice above all others. Remember that you are beloved. You were made for this joy, for, full, for fulfillment, for wholeness. And if you're not ready to jump into the water and race off to him, I understand. But just point your boat in his direction. Head toward the shore. And as long as you're not Peter, who decides to head out on his own, although there's, there is some merits in that, eye-rolling aside, you'll find that there are some good companions with you in the boat who will pull in the same direction. But be prepared when you see him to answer these questions with your whole heart and with your whole life. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? May your answers lead you to joy. Amen.